Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the international editor for Adweek. And I'm Ko Im, the community editor at Adweek. And for our special episode on this Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, uh, we are going to talk about um, some attitudes towards the AAPI community and some data, and also share a few stories um, and backgrounds along the way. And for that, we are joined by our special guests, uh, one of the co-founders of Launch.org, Norman Chen, and Eric Toda, Global Head of Social Marketing at Facebook. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Delighted to be here. Yeah, so great to have you both. Yeah, and I feel like, um, you know, part of me wants to say happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, but it's been such a time of reckoning um, for our community and for our allies. And I don't know, the data that we'll talk about is really staggering. And I think stuff that we all know or our friends or our leaders have experienced. Um, so it's it's a really kind of sombering time as well. Do you all feel kind of mixed right now? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here. I think that, um, well, first off, thanks for having us on the show. And I think one of the things you missed is uh, I'm actually a board member of Launch too. So I'm one, mm-hmm. of, uh, I'm one of Norman's followers. Um, you know, I look, at, I, I look at what Asian Pacific Heritage Month is meant to do. It's meant to recognize our, our history, recognize and celebrate our journey in this country collectively and not just East Asian or South Asian or Southeast Asian. And so I do think this month has meant a lot more to the community more so in previous years, because we are in the midst of a larger cultural awakening for our community where it's an empowerment month. It's a, it's not just a celebration month or remembrance month. It's an empowerment month. And I think a lot of things are coming to life that our outcomes of one, the, the, the response to the hate and the violence against our community and the outcome and byproduct of that are very positive things. I think we're starting to mobilize a lot better. We're starting to remove 
the divisions that have historically uh, pulled us apart in our own Asian community. And I look at this month specifically and the work that Launch and, and Norman is leading as one of the strongest outcomes of taking all that pain, taking all that hate, taking all that anger and funneling it into something that lasts much longer than a month, something that lasts much longer than a year and much actually much longer than a movement. And so um, I think it's different, Co. I, I think it's different and rightfully so, rightfully so. Like this isn't about posting stuff on, on Instagram and calling it a day. This is about how do we use this window of opportunity to push not just our community forward, but the collective communities around us forward as well. Yeah. And and speaking of mobilization, so Norman, tell us um, how Launch came together. Um, you were with a group of friends and, and trying to figure out, you know, what we can do. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Co. Yeah. So we're a group of uh, Asian Americans, um, for the most part, who were born and raised in the U.S. And, you know, we experienced life as, as second generation. And um, growing up, we faced some racism and discrimination in the East Coast, on the West Coast, wherever we grew up. But then a lot of us spent 20 years plus living overseas, and that was a whole different experience living the majority. And that was very powerful and really helped us to understand our cultures better. When we moved back to the States about uh, eight years ago, we were hoping that things had actually improved during our lifetimes. I mean, we're in our 50s. And we were really disappointed to see that things have not only not improved, they've actually gotten worse. And so to your earlier point about this being very sobering. Uh, the, the, the rhetoric, uh, the trajectory of anti-Asian American sentiment in the U.S. was very, very disturbing. And so last fall, you know, in the thick of it all, in the middle of COVID, we just said we have to do something, you know, for the rest of our lives. If we don't do something, we'll regret this. So we came together uh, and we formed Launch. And initially, we worked on the, the campaign, right, because that was the hot topic last fall. And so we worked with a great group, APIA Vote, and helped support some digital marketing to Asian Americans in battleground states like Pennsylvania. And that was really impactful. But then after that, the election was over, we thought, well, what can we do more long-term, more sustainable, as Eric mentioned? And you know, people are becoming more aware of the hate crimes and the attacks, but people were not really talking about what are the causes of these hate crimes? What are the underlying conditions that hopefully we can address and try to solve? And so we looked at research on hate crimes and realized that hate crimes are due to extreme forms of prejudice. And so then looking at research on prejudice and stereotypes in America towards Asian Americans, there have not been comprehensive studies done nationally since 2001, which is shocking. 20 years, you know, our population has nearly doubled in the U.S. And there's not a lot of research out there about how we're perceived and accepted or not accepted in American society. So uh, being entrepreneurial, we decided this is an area where we can add some value and, and be part of a national discussion. And so we conducted this status index survey to track Asian Americans in the U.S. This year is the first year. We want to track it on an annual basis so we can see trends over time. That's going to be very powerful. And we work with um, scientists and Asian American scholars to come up with a very comprehensive survey and that was inspired by the Anti-Defamation League survey. They do, they've been doing a survey since 1964 uh, of American attitudes towards Jewish people. And so we took that as kind of our initial idea and then expanded that to 39 questions. Uh, and we conducted a survey with 2,800 people. So um, that's kind of the background. And we're really excited about the results and quite surprised, actually, by some of the results. 
Yeah, and I want to clarify for folks who maybe aren't familiar with Launch. It's uh, L-A-A-U-N-C-H. It's Leading Asian Americans to Unite for Change. Uh, the study, we I mean, we could spend hours talking about this. There's so much uh, data in here. There's so, so much heartbreaking data in here, um, but also really to your point about I don't, I don't think people not only uh, w- weren't aware of the extent of the problem, I don't think they were aware of the scope of the – to your point, the motivations, I guess, this is the way to put it, this, the nature of the discrimination, the nature of the um, uh, of the, the misbeliefs uh, that, that folks have. And you your study basically breaks out five key findings. Do you, is, do you mind walking us through these five, five findings? Because I feel like those really give a, a good overarching view of just how how misunderstood the scope of this problem is by a lot of mainstream America. Definitely. And so I'll go through them, uh, the, the top five. Um, so number one, one of our headliners is that uh, nearly 80% of Asian Americans say they are discriminated against in the U.S. And this is consistent with data from other surveys. So that that's encouraging, but it also obviously it's depressing that uh, there's such a high level of discrimination towards Asian Americans. Um, we need to say, though, that if you look at the Black American experience, 90% of Black Americans say they're discriminated against and 73% of Hispanic Americans. So it is a widespread problem against all communities of color. And I think that's an important point. Um, A second important area related to that, and I won't count it as one of my five, so I can get in a few more data points here, is that 23% of Asian Americans say that we feel respected in the US. And if you understand Asian American culture or Asian culture at all, respect is number one or two on the list of what's important. And so the fact that only 23% of Asian Americans feel respected in our home country is very disappointing and depressing. It shows you the mental health issues that people have to go through if they don't feel respected and where they live. Um, despite this, and despite all the awareness of uh, the the hate crimes and attacks, you know, and we, as we've been, you know, um, we've seen many, many articles, especially since the Atlanta killings, 37% of white Americans say they're not aware of an increase in hate crimes and racism against Asian Americans over the past year, 37%. 46% of Republicans are not aware. And then 24% say, that Asian, anti-Asian American racism isn't a problem that should be addressed, is not a problem. So high levels, despite all the press coverage of lack of information, lack of awareness of these hate crimes, and even when they're made aware, a quarter of um, white Americans don't think this is a problem that should be addressed. So fundamental problems that uh, of communication and motivation, to your point, that need to be addressed. Um, so those are kind of the the first bucket of, of areas we looked at were kind of race relations and the racial crisis in the U.S. The second bucket is related to kind of these um, toxic, you know, perpetual stereotypes of Asian Americans, the model minority myth, the perpetual foreigner myth, and the yellow peril myth. And here I'll just highlight, you know, a one or two, and that is where pe- when we ask people to use adjectives to describe Asian Americans, the top three are smart, intelligent, hardworking, and nice. You know, and these are the same terms that have been used for the past 50 years to describe Asian Americans. Rarely are terms used such as strong, confident, and brave, such as what is being used to describe Black Americans um, or powerful, superior for white Americans. We have the same stereotypical descriptions. And on the surface, they seem positive, but obviously we know that the model minority myth is insidious in how it divides Asians versus not uh, other people of color 
how it um, hides the real needs and issues for many in the AAPI community who suffer economically and socially, and also makes Asian Americans an envied group. If you study some psychology there, these groups oftentimes are attacked during times of, of times of crisis, sometimes violently. And so it creates this us versus them kind of mentality, which, which isn't good. Um, we asked another provocative question in terms of how much would you agree that Asian Americans are more loyal to their country of origin than to the US? So basically we're questioning their patriotism. And 20% of Americans across the board say Asian Americans are more loyal to their country of origin than to the US. So this again is a classic example of the perpetual foreigner myth. Wow, to know that, that to go through life knowing that one in five people around you uh, think you're a traitor to your own country, you know, essentially. That's exactly. I mean, it's it's, it's disturbing, and you know, it doesn't take a lot of people to cause these hate crimes, you know, to see that the, the really violent effects of that. So, um, yeah, it, it's very very dangerous and very pervasive in our society. The last one I think, which has gotten a lot of headline, is about when we ask people hey, can you name uh, any prominent Asian Americans? And I think you've seen this one, and it was headlined in certain news reports. Um, yeah, 42% of, of people in, in America uh, could not name a prominent Asian American or didn't know. Uh, just shocking. And then the number two answer was uh, Jackie Chan, whom we love uh, from our days in Hong Kong, but is not an American. Uh, and then third is an American, but again, another martial arts expert, Bruce Lee, who's been dead for almost 50 years, tragically. So, I mean, what, of a, what kind of reflection is this of uh, our of, uh, visibility or invisibility in American society to have, you know, those three be the top three answers? I vote Eric Toda. Uh, he's, my, <laughs> he's my famous person. Um, but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the studies bring up so much for me. Um, interesting point about how respect is kind of a, a passed down immigrant value at least in my family, and yeah. for us not to feel that in society and in the workplace is such a psychological uh, divide, right? And mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. it goes into my own experience of this bicultural fissure in, in growing up and trying to accept the realities of having these competing um, identities um, also, a couple of the, the questions or the findings bring up a lot of, um, you know, white privilege and, and denial and microaggressions as part of um, discrimination. Um, one of the other things I liked, uh, or I not liked, but what I found supremely interesting in this study was that Asian Americans uh, or Americans might be more familiar with Asian Americans being the nurses, right? We, there's a stereotype yeah. of the Filipino nurses, but they weren't right. so used to seeing an Asian American as a CEO. So I want to ask mm. Eric, um, because I know that you've talked about this extensively, but also here, you know, hearing that, how does that make you feel? What experiences can you share about coming to rise as an Asian American leader at one of the biggest tech companies in the world? I mean, it, uh, here's the thing. It's not surprising. Like none of this is surprising. I think discrimination against our own community is, is, is a, is a, uh, it's woven into the fabric of the U S and I do think that not being, not given the respect 
for even helping build this country is something that again is 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 due to a lack of education which then perpetuates a lack of perspective of our community which then perpetuates lack of empathy and i think that lack of empathy is what pulls us apart and it what's it's what's separating us from being equal to be quite honest with you and this is why the data is so important for us is because it's hopefully to educate and at least bring to life the gaps in knowledge the gaps that we need to fill in media in advertising in movies and film to show representation to show that we are here and so i think to your question i think i've been told many times through this journey that asian leaders just don't exist and i tell them you know kamala harris is south asian right <laughs> and you know i th i think the thing is it's that we do exist norman's a ceo he's a very successful you know venture capitalist as well and while i'm very early on my journey you know i've worked so hard alongside the marvin chows the nick trans of the world to make sure that we are in leadership positions and we've had to go through the fire just to get there right and so to know that people don't see us um it is disappointing but it's not surprising co again like i think we have a lot of work to do and i think this is what the data that norman is 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 really presenting is justifying but it's also validating it's validating a gut feeling that we always had that we always knew where we stood in the communities of of the us and it allows us to make tangible efforts based on that data to say this is why we need better education this is why we need better career pathing this is why we need to break down what dni actually means in a corporation which typically it's very binary black and white this is why all those things need to evolve. And so what I look at what Norman shared is a catalyst for that change. It's a catalyst for me not to be disappointed anymore, but instead hopeful that we could take that data, bring it to Congress. We, and like Norman just did, Norman just brought it to Congress last week, bring it to corporations, bring it to venture capital. So then we can influence those organizations so that they can actively participate and actively iterate on their processes. Erica, I feel like you are at also an interesting cross-section here of the, there's the high-level discussion of these topics um, at the, you know, at the executive level and at the uh, policy level. And then there's kind of the ground-level discussion uh, where we often see that play out uh, in social discussions, like in social media. And I don't. I don't think it'll be surprising to anybody. I mean, I know we all like to say we don't read the comments, uh, but you know, when you read the comments on news coverage, or if you delve into the replies that people get when they come out publicly about some of these issues, and I'm sure this will happen to folks who are sharing some of this data, there is a a real level of complexity to that to to the debates that uh, end up happening in those comment fields about different marginalized communities uh you know feeling sometimes pitted against each other uh it, it's it's both fascinating and heartbreaking to go through those but as someone who kind of lives in both of those worlds how would you describe the way you're seeing these topics being discussed in, in social media as they've gotten more visibility all right I, I think what I've seen so far, and this is the, the narrative that I'm trying to change and we're trying to change, is that <clears throat> the more education that is out there, not just for our community, but I'm talking about all minority communities, the more that our history is shown, the more that you develop empathy and perspective around our, all of our differences, and the more that we understand we're actually more powerful together, right? I look at the comments right now, 
Um, and I just want to shout out to the people that have sent me DMs that are very hateful. I, uh, I probably, I probably won't respond, but, uh, there's nothing you can say to me that, uh, that will actually hurt. I promise you that. Um, I have gotten a lot of hateful comments. I've seen the comments, but I think the reality is, is, is that a lot of times people see something that we put out there for the Asian community right now, and they think we're taking away from Black Lives Matter. They think they're taking away from Me Too. The, and I want to just be very clear. This is not the oppression Olympics. There is no one community that wins gold. Like we all win gold together. Like this is a larger cultural awakening that yes, has started with you know, women's rights and women's equality, not just in the workplace, but in society at large that has transcended into the black community doing the same thing, making sure that they have equal level playing ground that has now come into our community and we will not be the last. Like, that's just the truth. Like we are in this larger cultural awakening that what we're putting down and what we're showing, there will likely be another community that introduces their own forms of data, taking cues from Norman, taking cues from launch, taking cues from the ADL, because the more that we are in control of our history, the more that we are in control of the data that's out there, the more that we can make sure that we are not erased. Because I could tell you right now, just looking back on my own personal experience, I didn't learn about Chinese Exclusion Act internment camps of my own people in my history books growing up. We were effectively erased from California history. And it's our job to make sure, and it's other communities' jobs to make sure that the history of our peoples and our communities in this country are actually shown, celebrated, and not erased. And so I do think that's the root cause of it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I look at the comments right now and it's not about taking and pulling apart. It's about bringing everybody together. And I think we'll look back on this five, 10 years from now and realize that it wasn't just one community versus another. It wasn't just one community taking, taking away from another community. It was all communities waking up collectively and saying, we are one America. Like we are one America, we are all Americans. And we were just fighting for our place in the collective society and collective culture to be acknowledged as American. Yeah. I know that um, I have been asked, right, as part of these DMs and conversations, I've been asked to kind of speak up and, and represent and mostly to provide actionable items, right? Like what, what, what can I do? What can you do? So Norman, what are some ways um, I know that, you know, there are some hopes for use of this data, right? Like putting yeah. it forward in front of Congress. But um, what are some ways that folks can amplify um, the the addition of our humanity? Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, we, you know, we love the data because it's powerful and it's important. And as Eric said, it's it's been lacking for a long time. But the data is then meant to fuel other efforts. And, and Clearly, going through Congress is really important. We were fortunate to present to them last week for other community leaders also to use our data and advocate for the issues now that they have better information is really a big part of our efforts as well. But one of the questions we asked in our survey was, what can be done to address these anti-Asian American hate crimes? And you know, you'd be surprised, maybe not surprised, that collectively, there's a lot of good ideas out there. And actually, when we tried to aggregate them, the four main buckets were very, very, they made a lot of sense. I mean, number one, as we talked about, is education, right? Education about the Asian American experience. You know, I grew up on the East Coast. We never had Asian American history. Uh, but my daughter, who's in high school here in California, actually has a high school class on Asian American history. And that's progress, right? And other places around the country, like Illinois and California, are trying to institute 
uh, Asian American history in schools, and that's really important. So one of our initiatives is to work with leading educators to develop innovative and interesting curricula about Asian American history so that people actually want to read it, learn from it, and then understand our story and our struggle better so they can be more empathetic going forward. So education is a huge piece. Awareness through programs like yours, the media are really, really important. In addition, as we found, TV, movies, and music are hugely influential. And uh, so groups like Gold House and others are doing great work and we are connecting with them and trying to see how we can provide our data to them, help them on their initiatives, because that's so important, especially for some communities where they don't have a lot of interaction with Asian Americans and they get most of their information about Asian Americans from TV, movies, and music. So if we're shown as gangsters or shown as martial artists all the time, well, no surprise, people have those misperceptions. Um, the other areas that we think have a lot of potential are working also with, with legislators, as mentioned, on laws and on more protections for Asian Americans and just general greater outreach to other communities. You know, um, this is not meant to divide one group from an, with another. You know, these are all issues that really are similar if you look across different racial groups, you know, the, the oppression of people of color in the U.S. And so huge opportunity for us to collaborate and work with other communities of color to address the systemic racism. And again, it's not a competition. Who is more victimized? It's about working together uh, to find common solutions. And so looking forward, I am optimistic. Uh, we're at the base right now, David. This is hopefully uh, where we move up from. And over time, we're going to see progress. There's a greater reckoning, a greater motivation, um, activation among the community, not just Asian Americans, but you know other racial groups as well. So I think long-term, we're moving in the right direction, but it's going to take some time. And the first point at the end of this of the study in terms of actions to move this forward, as you mentioned, is share the data. Just share it. Just let other people know. Uh, take what really resonates with you, what jumps out. I'll do a quick uh, shout to fellow white folks. Uh, don't, don't sit it out. Don't, don't feel like this is someone else's conversation. Uh, this is something Co and I have talked about in a lot of different topics over this past year, especially on the show. Is just like how frustrating it is when any community feels like they have to carry the entire burden of a conversation uh, themselves. And and I'll just uh, yeah again just I'll tell people and, and I'll also admit that it is it's easy right it's so easy to say nothing it's so easy to just see your friends sharing stuff and and give them a clap emoji and be like. All right, I did my part. I thanked someone for sharing that. Uh, no, you know, take the time to share it yourself. And I'll say that you get a nice endorphin boost too. It's not like it's it's not like you're just doing something for some only greater good. Like you start hearing from people, you start hearing from friends, you start being a part of more conversations uh, where people just appreciate you being being there, and then you feel more informed. Anyway, that's a, that's just my my standard call. <laughs> No, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Griner. Like, no, like, I think that needs to be said, right? And, you know, I always come back to this. A lot of people ask me, like, how, how they can help. And I think the uncomfortable truth for people who aren't a shade of brown like us, I'm more khaki colored than anything else, but um, the uncomfortable truth is that you will likely experience or witness an injustice, discrimination, harassment, an act of racism, whether it be micro or macro, in your lifetime, in likely the next five years, to be quite honest with you. 
And my only ask to you is, if you do witness this, acknowledge it, but also don't be a bystander. I think many times, in, uh, in my experience at least, <clears throat> I've always wished for, wished for people not to be a bystander. And it's super easy to throw up your camera, take a video, post it on social and say, I can't believe this is happening, but actively get in there and stand and do what's right. I could tell you right now, just to bring it to a personal level, because that's how a lot of this works. And when I was growing up here in Northern California, um, my family had to leave restaurants a few, a few different times. And Northern California typically prides itself on how progressive it is. But we've had to leave restaurants because someone from another table was just running their mouth, just harassing us, you know, calling my family a chink or a Jap or a gook. And it was in front of my brother and in front of my sister. And our, our dinner gets delivered to the table. And my father and mother have to make a decision to leave right after the food gets delivered. And I remember thinking, this is, I was like seven between, this happened between I was seven and 13 years old. I remember thinking, I just wish someone in this restaurant would just stand up and do the right thing. I just wish someone that doesn't look like us would say, stop doing that and kick this person out. And it always brings me back to this one instance that happened in Carmel Valley last, at the beginning of the pandemic, where a Filipino family was at dinner and a tech CEO was harassing them telling them Trump was going to deport them, telling them a whole bunch of racist comments and no one was doing anything. But then you see in the middle of that video, a white waitress stand up, kick the guy out and do the right thing. And so, yes, there is a level to it of engaging in the conversation. There's a level to it in learning and being active in this journey that we're all on um, of this cultural awakening. But I think the bigger thing is is you will witness eventually some level of an injustice may not happen to my community may not happen to the black community may not happen to the female community may happen to another community just do the right thing and don't be a bystander because what i pray and what i'm actively working towards what norman's working towards is making sure that that story that i told of my family having to leave a restaurant doesn't happen again it shouldn't happen again and I do think we just see too many times of people being bystanders. And so I would say, take an active approach, take an active approach and stand up for what's right and stand up for, you know, people that are people that are being bullied and, and, and harassed. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. Basically, this is you're standing up for humanity when you do that. Right? Yes, and I believe are. there are good people out there, but also good people that can be confused about what to do and, um, you know, scared to do something because mm -hmm. they've never done it before. Totally. You can prepare this, you know, and here's the thing. I would do this for other people, for other communities, right? If I see something happening on the subway, um, I know psychologically you'll either go fight, flight, freeze, fawn, right? But once you practice, I think, speaking up and owning your voice, your voice is a human, your voice for other humans, I believe it gets much easier. So I'm prepared just as much to pepper spray somebody when I'm walking outside. But also, if I witness something happening to someone else that is inhumane, then I will also do something, whether it is posting and yelling, intervening, um, calling for other help. Groupthink is such a, a, a terrible mentality um, and the whole point, I think, is that we are individuals. Each one of us on this call, we're an individual. 
Um, each one of you listening is an individual. And we just want the same access and celebration, I think, of that individuality. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like in just a reflection of like, I've, I've been, I've been guilty of, of not, of, of not taking an active approach myself. You know, it's taken me 10 years to speak up for our community, you know, and I've witnessed a lot. Right. And I think this is where, what we're presenting today and, and what we're hoping to do with launch hopefully dismantles a lot of that, you know, because I, I don't think in the past 10 years, I've ever felt that I've had support to call out someone in a workplace you know, especially in an industry like marketing and advertising that I've been in for 10, for 12 years, that isn't the most diverse, you know, in industry. And I'd, I've never felt support if someone were to, something were to happen to me and, and, and I don't feel support to correct someone. And I haven't corrected people when they make assumptions, when they say little microaggressions here and there, but that's, that's changing. Right. I think that's changing. I think that's changing with data that we're that Norman's presented today. I think that's changing with the actions that launch is taking. I think that's changing collectively as this awakening and movement continues down its journey. And so um I think it goes both ways. I think you know, we ask for bystander help, we ask for allyship when no one knows what really that means. That just means doing the right thing. And that also means on us to do the right thing as well, to bring people along on the journey, correct them when they may, they may, they may mean to do well, but allow them to learn with you and allow them, you know, to, to see, to see your perspective, because again, it comes down to empathy. And that's what I think, that's what I truly think this data does. It provides a little bit more empathy when we have a tremendous lack of it in culture today. Yeah. People ask me, you know, given all the terrible hate crimes you're seeing, what feelings do you have, Norman? And to me, I, I have two primarily. Number one, of course, is outrage, right? Just how wrong these are and just and, and especially how we're being people who are the most vulnerable in our community are the ones being attacked. And it's just there's nothing right about that. But the second emotion I have, which is a little more of the positive one, is defiant. I feel defiant. I feel not submissive. I feel that we do um, feel the need to fight back, you know, in many ways, obviously not violently, but in a way to show resistance and to stand up and speak up for the, maybe the first time in some of our lives. And I think that defiance is fueled by the anger, the frustration, the history, but it's channeling in, in a very positive way to real action, you know, data and research like ours, great work that other community leaders are doing, uh, legislation, awareness, these are all very positive factors. So, you know, our hope with this, the status index and ultimately with launch is to do this on an annual basis so we can see hopefully progress, right? Unless you have metrics, you can't track anything. That's business 101. So here we are building a metric that we establish a baseline today. I mean, we wish we, wish we had done this last year and seen the difference between last year pre-COVID and now with COVID, how big of a difference that would have made. But going forward, we will, we will track this on an annual basis and see how things change. And we can even look at it by certain parts of the country to see how things may change in certain parts of the country or according to certain demographics. That's the power of the data. So, you know, I am optimistic. I feel we are beginning to move in the right direction. There is more empathy, there is more awareness and certainly more activation uh, of people who feel defiant like we do. Well, I definitely encourage everyone listening to this to go to launch.org. That's L-A-A 
unch.org to learn more about this data, about what you can do, about how you can get involved. And I just cannot thank you both enough, Norm and Eric, for coming out. Uh, Code, thank you so much for helping facilitate this conversation. Uh, I, I, there is so much more in this data that we didn't even, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. So I hope folks will take the time to really familiarize with themselves with it. But thank you both for all the work you're putting into this. Thank you so much for having us. No, thank you. Always a pleasure. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Nick Gardner and edited by Lane McGibney. If you've not already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help help us feel better, and also they help us uh, reach new audiences. Uh, You can reach us anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.